Hello and welcome to this Herbert Smith Freehills podcast. I'm Maura McIntosh and I'm a professional support consultant in the litigation team in London. Today I have with me Kim Dietzel and Stephen Whisking, who are partners in our competition litigation team and are two of the authors of our textbook, Class Actions in England and Wales, which is published by Sweet and Maxwell. Uh, this is the second in our series of podcasts to mark the launch of our second edition. And in this episode, we'll be focusing on competition class actions. That's an area that's seen very significant growth over the past year or two, and we'll look at why that is. But first of all, Kim, uh, to give some context, can you please explain the regime for bringing competition class actions in the UK and, and what makes it unique? The UK class action regime was introduced in 2015 under the Consumer Rights Act, and it's a broad regime. Claims can be brought by businesses as well as consumers. The claims can be standalone as well as follow on. Follow on means following on from a regulatory investigation. Or they can be a combination of, of both with follow on and standalone elements. Importantly, claims can be opt out as well as opt in. And, and what we mean by opt out is that they're brought on behalf of a whole class the members of which don't have to take any individual action to be covered by the claim. And, and that's really what makes it so unique, Maura, and what is very different from, from anything that had gone before. Um, a few other points about the regime. Class representatives uh, can be a class member or um, a, an individual or a body, a trade association, or even a purpose, um, a special purpose vehicle. They need to be authorised by the Competition Appeal Tribunal as a, a suitable class representative. And we refer to the Competition Appeal Tribunal as the CAT in, in general and in this talk. Uh, the first stage for bringing a claim is to file an application for a collective proceedings order or CPO. And that is the first step to be recognised as a, as a class within this regime. The application is then heard by the CAT. And the CAT decides whether it can certify the claim to proceed to trial. So the purpose of this certification limb is to ensure that vexatious or unmeritorious claims are weeded out at an early stage. Thanks. Uh, that, that's very helpful. Um, although you mentioned the regime was introduced in 2015, I understand it, it got off to a, a rather slow start. Stephen, can you explain why that was and, and how it's picked up momentum since then? Yeah. So the first claim that was brought was um, in 2016, and it was based on a decision by the UK Competition Authority, the CMA, uh, relating to agreements between a mobility scooter supplier and, and some of its retailers, which prevented those retailers from advertising prices online below a specified level. So it was a sort of resale price maintenance case. Um, and it was brought by the um, General Secretary of the National Pension Pensioners Convention, um, Ms. Gibson, and she was seeking damages on behalf of a class of purchasers of these mobility scooters. When it got to the certification stage in the Competition Appeal Tribunal, um, the tribunal of CAT identified um, a flaw in the damages assessment, and so it adjourned the hearing of the, the certification hearing to allow Ms. Gibson to reformulate the application. The claim was just later withdrawn and, and the speculation is that it was just not viable under the 
reformulated damages model. So that that sort of case went nowhere. And then um, the next significant case was a bit later in 2016, which was a, a claim brought uh, by Walter Merricks based on uh, a European Commission decision um, in uh, relation to MasterCard um, relating to the interchange fees that were passed on to retailers. Um, and it was seeking uh, significant, so in this case, £14 billion in damages on behalf of uh, 46 million consumers on the basis that retailers had in turn passed on these um, uh, interchange fees uh, to consumers as part of their retail prices. Now, the tribunal uh, originally refused to certify that case in 2017, and there was a series of appeals that um, came out of it, focusing on the question of where the threshold lies for certification. And that series of appeals effectively led to a bottleneck on on other uh, CPO applications, which were all stayed wait, awaiting the outcome of this this case. And we didn't get the Supreme Court judgment in the case until 2020. Um, and significantly, uh, that judgment set a low bar for certification. Um, and since then, there's been a real uptick in the number of um, claims being filed. So just to, to give you the numbers, prior to the Supreme Court judgment in Merricks, there were nine CPO applications in the period from 2015 to 2020, so roughly two a year. Since the Supreme Court judgment, we had seven applications in 2021. Uh, and 13 in 2022, and we expect that trend uh, to continue going forwards. Thanks. Uh, you mentioned that the MasterCard case has set a relatively low bar for certification. Uh, can you expand on that? Yeah, so the, the requirements for certification are in the legislation, and, and, and they're essentially these. First of all, the class representative has to be appropriate. Secondly, you've got to be able to identify the members of the class. Thirdly, across all the different claims that make up the class, there's got to be a, either the same, similar or related issue of fact or law. And then lastly, the claims have to be suitable to be brought in um, collective proceedings. And the main sort of battleground in Merricks was whether or not the, the loss that the claimants were, were seeking could be treated as a common issue and established across the class. Um, and then also how the tribunal generally should approach this question of suitability um, in collective proceedings. And, and the key findings of the Supreme Court were that when it comes to the sort of methodology for calculating loss, um, the appropriate test is whether that methodology offers a realistic prospect of establishing loss. No more than that. It doesn't have to be perfectly developed at the, at the certification stage. And then the second point on suitability was all suitability is is a relative test and, and that the claim has to be suitable in the sense of being better than uh, would be the case if the proceedings were brought individually. Uh, with individual claims for damages. So you can see that the Supreme Court sets a, a, a relatively low bar for certification. And since that decision in Merricks, 
we've had a wave of certification hearings and as i said a, a wave of new claims um being brought and and there are now 10 cpo applications which have been granted and a further 18 which are pending um there have only been three cases where um certification has been refused and none of them are cases where there's been an outright refusal um of of the claim so in the case of um the trucks uh, litigation, an application for a, an opt-out um, CPO was refused, but an application for an opt-in CPO was, was granted. And in the foreign exchange litigation, where there were two competing opt-out applications, um, um, those were refused on an opt-out basis. But the proposed class representatives were were both given permission to submit revised applications for certification on an opt-in basis. Um, we've also seen appeals from some of these certification decisions, and, and the Court of Appeal has sort of re reiterated this, this low bar um, to certification to the point now where we're starting to see cases where um, defendants are not even um, contesting certification, preferring to keep uh, their power dry for the, the substantive phase of the case. Um, but what it is important to remember, though, that um, even if the defendants don't choose to contest certification, it's still a step that has to be gone through. Uh, the tribunal will still hold a hearing because the tribunal has a responsibility to sort of kick the tyres on the case and, and to test whether the, the criteria for certification are met. Thanks, and that, that that's interesting. Uh, so, Kim Stevens talked about the difficulty of of knocking out these claims at the certification stage. But uh, are, are there still arguments that can be made on certification by defendants? Yes, there are still points to to pick up um, with perhaps different strategic aims. So, starting with with potential challenges around the personal attributes of the proposed class representative or around the funding arrangements that the class representative has put in place. Um, those challenges have generally been unsuccessful, unsuccessful in the sense that a CPO has still ultimately been granted, but you could describe them as successful in the sense that they have often led to improvements in the setup and the structure around what the class representative proposed. So in particular around funding arrangements, it's relatively common that these have had to be improved, if you like, as a result of the challenges made pre-certification. Um, and one example of that might be where funding arrangements don't provide adequate cover for the whole litigation or, for example, for the potential adverse cost liabilities should the class rep representative lose against the defendant. Those sort of issues have been picked up pre-certification and, and have um, then led to changes that are generally improvements from a defendant's perspective. In terms of arguments against the CPO being granted at all, it, it is perhaps more difficult, but there are areas such as um, challenging aspects of the class definition uh, and including delving into subtleties of subclass definition, because narrowing the scope of the class can have a significant impact on 
the total size of the claim and therefore the total amount that can be claimed in damages. So it's it's getting uh, part of the the action out sort of around the edges, if you like. There is also scope to challenge whether an action should be brought on an opt out basis. So if you can argue that the claim is more suitable to be brought on an opt-in basis, then that likely significantly reduces the total amount of any potential damages um, because necessarily the, the class will be smaller. A smaller proportion of people will actively opt in. Another area that is important to consider at the early stage is the proposed methodology for assessing damages of the class and whether it is grounded in the facts of the case and thus workable in, in practice, a class should not be certified if there's no way of ultimately determining the, the damage that is alleged. Um, so that continues to be an area of, of challenge in, this, in the certifications that we currently see pending. And then lastly, to mention in respect of standalone claims, there is necessarily no underlying infringement decision. So there is a whole issue around uh, establishing the infringement and whether the conduct in question amounted to such an infringement of competition law. And that, again, um, should be a, a fruitful area of challenge. Thanks for that. Just coming back to that opt-in, opt-out point, which seems um, must be hugely significant in these claims. So can you Explain a bit more about how the CAT's approaching that in practice and, and, and also whether claimants are willing to take claims forward on an opt-in basis, if that's, if that's all they're allowed. Yes, that has been an important topic in, in some of the recent cases. And what we now know is there is no general presumption in favour of opt-in proceedings. The Court of Appeals judgment in Le Paturel makes this clear despite the fact that the CATS 2015 Guide to Proceedings states that a class representative seeking opt-out proceedings must make submissions as to why they are more appropriate than opt-in proceedings. So the, the original reading of that might have suggested otherwise, but it's now clear that there are, there's no general presumption in, in favour of opt-in. The Court of Appeal also emphasised that the CAT can take into account the likely take-up rate of an opt-in class when determining whether opt-out is more suitable. Uh, so in the Lepatarel case, the CAT was entitled to have regard to the likely demographic of the affected BT customers in that case. They were elderly, lower socioeconomic groups, uh, potentially disengaged, um, and therefore uh, that was considered to be in favour of it being an opt-out class, um, as was the technical nature of the claim, so that it's a competition law claim, which, again, many of the affected class members might not have engaged with. So based on that, it was concluded that the claim could proceed on an opt-out basis um, because the court felt that proceeding on an opt-in basis would have limited the take-up rate. So what we glean from that court, appeal, court of appeal judgment, as well as the other certifications of consumer classes, is that it seems that the CAT generally favours opt-out in cases which involve large numbers of consumer claimants. 
Um, and that touches on the other aspect of your question. There is a reluctance of funders to proceed if a consumer class is certified on an opt-in basis only. And the CAT considers that an important factor. So in a consumer claim where the loss suffered by each individual claimant is likely small, it, funders often say they will not fund other than uh, on an opt-out basis. And so it is argued that the claim cannot really get off the ground if it's limited to opt-in only. However, the picture is a bit different when you consider a smaller group of claimants um, with maybe more significant loss numbers. And also um, when you think about business claimants. So it remains to be seen how this will play out in future cases. But where there are business claimants, uh, there seems to be some support for the argument that those claimants with significant values at stake uh, should be required to opt into an action. Thanks for that. That's, that's interesting. Um, so, so, Stephen, can you give a flavour then? Uh, we've talked about a few cases in general terms, but just to give a, a flavour of the sorts of claims being brought under the regime and, and sort of what trends we're seeing. Sure. So um, the, the claims obviously cover a wide range of sectors, um, which just reflects the fact, I think, that um, you know you, you can make allegations about competition law infringements um, anywhere. But one sector that's particularly in the spotlight uh, for these kind of claims is the tech sector. And, and we've seen claims being filed against Qualcomm, Apple, Sony, Meta, Google and Amazon. And I think tech companies are a particular target at the moment for a couple of reasons. First of all, you know, the products are used by large numbers of consumers so that even if the alleged loss is very small on a per capita basis when you multiply that across millions of people the 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 aggregate um damages are, are potentially very large and that facilitates the funding of the claim and the second factor is that the sector is under regulatory scrutiny at the moment so there are a number of open regulatory investigations by the competition authorities, either in the UK or, or in Europe, or even other parts of the world. And you see in these claims referencing of these investigations as, as support for, for the claim. But it's, it's not just the tech sector. So, you know, some of the cases we've touched on, um, there, are, there, there are claims in relation to the truck sector, railway tickets, maritime car carriers, musical instruments or high voltage power cables. So there's a real mix of things. But in terms of in terms of sort of the broad trends, um, it's probably fair to say that the majority of the claims are consumer claims. So Kim mentioned um, sort of the business claimant, but most of these claims are um, consumer claims being brought on an opt out um, basis where you have very large consumer classes you know, so in the Merrick's case, which I mentioned earlier, there's 45 million people in the class. Similarly, in the in the claim against Meta, um, and they're brought on an opt-out basis because the idea of trying to get millions of consumers to opt in is just is just not going to um, work, particularly when the per capita claim is is going to be very small. Um, you know, that said, there have been um, 
business claims. Um, so the, the trucks case, um, the foreign exchange case and some others, but they're predominantly consumer class actions. The other the other element of it is that um, when this re- regime started, I think we all expected that the claims would be follow on claims. So they would be based on a, uh, an infringement decision by the CMA or by the uh, European um, Commission. Uh, and, the, and the Gibson case was an example of that, where there was, there was a CMA infringement decision. But what's happened is that relatively few of the cases are, are follow on cases and most of them um, are standalone cases, albeit that there might be a, a parallel uh, ongoing investigation uh, by a competition authority. Um, I think the other uh, interesting feature of the regime is that although framed as they have to be as as competition cases, um, some of these claims are not obviously competition um, claims. And, you know, arguably claimants are trying to shoehorn cases which have uh, and other features into the regime because it, because it is, um, you know, the only uh, opt out class action regime we we have in uh, in the UK. So uh, we mentioned the, the the trains cases, and and in some respects these are cases about consumer protection, where the essence of the claim is that that the train companies didn't make passengers uh, properly aware that there were uh, in one case, cheaper ticket options for traveling to and from London. Uh, Kim mentioned the Le Pacherel case, which relates to um, BT's landline charges. Uh, and then there's another case um, against Apple about how it manages the battery life on, on iPhones. Uh, and you also see um, there's, there's, there's one case that's been recently publicized against water companies, uh, which relates to um, water quality, which has obviously dimensions of a sort of an environmental or environmental protection type case. Uh, and the claim against Meta relates to the use of, of data. So we are seeing this um, uh, use of this vehicle to bring in all sorts of things which, you know, at the start of the regime, we wouldn't have thought would, would have been a competition case. Um, and then I think the other feature of this, which is quite interesting, is that a lot of the claims that are being being brought um, are uh, in circumstances where there are parallel cases, whether class action or otherwise, in other countries. Um, so, for example, in the trucks claim there are, there are a number of other uh, claims in relation to to to, to truck um pricing in a, in a whole range of countries. Uh, the foreign exchange case, there are claims uh, in, in the US uh, and in, in other places. And that's true of some of the tech cases as well. So we're seeing, um, in a sense, a replication of you know, US class actions um, in the UK under this, um, under this new regime. Thanks. There does seem to be um, certainly a, a huge variety of, of, of types of cases being brought. So it'll be interesting to see how it all um, moves forward. Um, and on that point, we've, we've talked a lot about 
sort of certification and what claims are being allowed uh, to proceed. Uh, I guess the question is what what comes next? Uh, Kim, can you comment on how the claims are progressing after certification and, and what we think the key battlegrounds are, are likely to be going forward? In in terms of the process, there is obviously a lot that needs to happen between the award of certification and the actual trial hearing. So in terms of setting out the case and the defence in, in more detail, disclosure of evidence, witness evidence, expert reports, etc. So um, there is a lot that needs to happen post-certification. And what we see from the CAT is that it's setting out fairly aggressive timetables to trial with this in mind. The, the first claim that will be heard in trial will be Le Paturel in, in early 2024. Um, but then not long after, we've got the Kant Apple App Store case in October 24 and, and Cole Google Play Store case in September 25. So we've got within the next couple of years, Maura, um, a few cases that will have run all the way through to trial and, and we'll see what those judgments tell us. In terms of what we think now, what the key battlegrounds will be, um, the fundamental question of whether there was an infringement of competition law will no, no doubt be a major focus for standalone claims. But also in following claims, the damages claim often goes beyond the actual regulatory finding. Um, so even there, there are actual infringement questions that will need to be resolved at trial. It may even be that some of those have to be resolved as interim rulings to keep the cases overall uh, managed efficiently. Um, they could be sort of gatekeeper type issues that need to be resolved on a preliminary basis. And then moving beyond that, economic expert evidence will inevitably play a really important role in quantifying loss, more so even in a class action than in an individual competition action, just because on the class basis, the same attention to individual evidence is just not possible. So the economic expert plays a particularly significant role here. And, and maybe also in the standalone cases in, in respect of actually establishing the competition law infringement, you know, questions of market definition and, and um, conduct can all play into that and be dealt with to some extent by economic evidence. Um, the, under the heading of economics, there's also always the question around passing on as, as a defense. Was any loss passed down the supply chain? And that's particularly the case when you're not dealing with a consumer action. But even with the consumer actions, there's often a reliance on pass on arguments up the chain before the loss sort of ended up with a consumer level, if you like. So that's another big topic for economic expert evidence. And then lastly, something that will be really interesting in a from a case management perspective is is parallel case management so that arises for instance in the recent cpo applications that have been announced against the water companies which Stephen just mentioned and also in the cpos against musical instrument manufacturers where they deal with separate infringements that are um that happened in parallel at, at the same time and that case management question, I think, is is a new one and will play out in, in the coming months, maybe, or, or years. So plenty of developments to look out for more. Uh, probably content for another session in due course. 
Yes, indeed. Uh, certainly um, sounds like it's not going to be boring. There's there's lots to um, keep an eye on in, in the area. Um, so I think that that brings us to the end of this podcast. So uh, thank you to both Kim and Stephen uh, and and of course to everyone listening. So we will be back with um, further editions of this uh, series exploring other areas relating to class action. Thanks very much.